The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And here we are on the eve, almost the eve of the election. And so we thought we'd have two people who know elections like nobody else, Jim Brulke and Gary South. Uh, thank you both for joining us today. Happy to be here. There's no introduction. All I have to do is look you up and they get all the bio they want. So to jump right to the podcast. <laughs> so uh, I'm interested most personally in the congressional races. Uh, Gary and I, we chatted a little bit about that earlier. Jim, do you have any thoughts about these congressional races? One, uh, are Democrats going to be their toss-ups? I, I think of 10 or 11 that are toss-ups. How's that going to play out for Reaps versus the Dems? Well, uh, voters tend to do the same thing again and again and again, absent a major paradigm shift. And the one data point relative to all of the congressional races uh, this election cycle. In the last two decades, after a presidential election, one party has had the White House, the House, and the Senate three times going into the first midterm. And all three times in the last two decades, the voters have kicked that party out of the House or out of the Senate or both. So based on the historical norm, Republicans should get the House, the Senate, or both. Uh, how it plays out in individual uh, congressional districts, of course, um, is still undetermined, although I did see Real Clear Politics has Republicans winning a minimum of 228, and almost all of the swing districts are currently held by Democrats. So even if the Democrats pick up every one of the uh, races that are too close to call, uh, Republicans will take the majority. Um, so I'm relatively confident that the historic norm will evidence itself uh, on Tuesday or actually since registrars have about 30 days to count the ballots, uh, uh, we'll know by December 7th in California. If the toss-ups in California, those congressional districts, though, go to Democrats, does that math still hold for the House? Yes, there aren't that there aren't that many toss-up districts in California. Uh, the ones I'm most familiar with are in Orange County. Uh, Young Kim, I'm uh, Gary would know better, obviously, but I'm told that the uh, Pelosi Super PAC pulled out of that race a couple weeks ago. Same thing with the Michelle Steele race. Um, uh, I'm aware that there was a poll in the bar race a couple about five days ago, and it was 49-49 Baugh versus Porter. Uh, Porter is outspending Baugh about five to three down the stretch. Um, but, you know, that's too close uh, for comfort for either side. And uh, the Marriott Mike Levin uh, race is in the margin of error as well. So um, they're just not that many swing districts in California um, to make a difference as to which party takes the White House or takes the uh, the House this cycle. Gary, what do you think? Does a red wave uh, stop at the Sierra Nevada again as it has before sort of conventional wisdom or does any of this seep into California? Do you get any sense of that? 
I think it does. And we've seen that before. We've seen the red wave so-called stop at the Sierra Nevada mountains. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm pretty close to some of these congressional races, not that I'm working for anybody, but because I'm, in, I'm analyzing and assessing them for other clients. Um, and and here's, here's what I would say. Um, we have a top of the ticket candidate in California named Gavin Newsom who's going to win. Uh, the, the latest poll shows, shows him ahead 62-38. Uh, that's the very margin that he went, won by in, in 2018. That's the very margin by which he beat the recall last year. And every other Democrat at the top of the ticket, and we have no Senate candidate this year because we don't have a Senate seat up except for, you know, the Padilla seat. So we and he's an he's a um, he's an appointed incumbent. So he hasn't really performed yet except in a primary. But here's what I would say to you. I mean, I having having been involved in a lot of statewide races in California, as has Jim Brulte, when you have a top of the ticket that for one party or the other, that simply blows the other side out of the water, that has an impact on down ballot races. Now, it is true that, you know, we we have um, 52 congressional seats in California, and they're all basically local races. That's true. A lot of these, some of these seats are, are, are deep red. Uh, a lot of them, most of them are deep blue. Some of them are purple. Some of them are, you know, I wouldn't say swing, but some of them at least arguably you could say could be competitive, right? And, and, and be contested. But when you have a blowout at the top of the ticket, like we're gonna have here, uh, it's really hard for me to see how, when you go down that ballot, you're gonna have democratic seats picked off in California. It could happen, but if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet on it. I just don't see it happening. Do you see any, um, any does anything stand out with either one of you about the voter registration? The, the latest figures, this is as of less than, or about a week ago, maybe a little bit more, you know, 82%, almost 82% of those eligible have registered, which is just an amazing number. Well, some of that, though, is because of automatic voter registration that we now have under California law. When you sign up for a driver's license, you're automatically registered. So, I mean, I think, I think it's an impressive figure, John. I don't think it's quite as impressive as the numbers would 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 signal to somebody who really doesn't understand anymore how our voter registration process takes place in California. But it is a very high number. It's just kind of, uh, to me, it's amazing because if you register to vote, uh, of course, if you're registered, you don't know it because you got a license or something. That's one thing. But if you register to vote, doesn't that sort of bespeak uh, your inclination you want to vote? It just seems like there's this vast pool of voters out there that we're not, you know, neither party really is, is tapping into. Well, they certainly haven't shown up yet. When you look at what it was the number I saw today, um, 34.6 million Americans have already cast their ballots across the country. But um, the data I got yesterday from the California Republican Party, only about 25% of the expected turnout had returned their ballots. And the expected turnout, at least from our modeling, uh, isn't all that good. Uh, I, I I think this election is going to be much like the 2014 election. In 2014, you had an unpopular Democrat in the White House. You had a Democrat governor of California coasting to a very easy reelection. 
And the turnout was, by historical standards, very low. Um, it actually skewed a little towards Republicans, and Republicans did fairly well in 14, relatively speaking, uh, in California. Um, but I, I agree with Gary. The registration number may be impressive by uh, by historical standards. What is? Let me quote Gary South. Let me see if I can quote <laughs> Gary South here. There are more registered voters in California than there are residents in 46 of the other 49 states. <laughs> Correct. Uh, and so that's an impressive number. But our turnout um, will not be anywhere near what the turnout in Georgia, for example, will be. So I would make one counterpoint to that, which is that I agree that if you look currently today, at the number of, vote, of, of ballots that have been returned, it looks relatively low, but I will say this to you. We had the same phenomenon occur just in the primary in June. At this point in the primary, it was about the same number of ballots. That, and remember, it was an all-male ballot, just like this one. We had about the same number of votes percentage-wise turned in as of this point in the June primary as we do today. And at the end of the day, when all the ballots were in and all the votes were counted, that was the highest percentage of votes in a Democratic primary in California history, in a, in a statewide primary in California history. So we have a very recent instance where the numbers this this close to the election look relatively low, and then we blow out all turnout figures when people actually send their votes in. And I think we may be heading down that same tracker. I don't think it's going to be a low turnout. I think it's going to be a very high turnout. Can I, can I say one other thing, John, which is yeah, that you know, in looking at these congressional races, and I agree with Jim, I mean, I think that, you know, it would take it would take a, a miracle for Democrats to keep the House. I don't think it's in the cards. I think it, what really is at question here in question is how big the Republican margin would be. And I'll make a comment about that in a minute, in a minute as well. But one of the things that I see occurring here is that there are a lot of polls that are being thrown onto the table here at the end that show Republicans in a very strong position to take back the House and take over some of these democratically held U.S. Senate seats. Now, I'm saying this from a Democratic perspective, so keep that in, in mind. But the fact is, a lot of these polls that are being thrown on the table that are driving these polling averages, where real clear politics is moving races from lean Democrat to toss up, from likely Democrat to lean Democrat, are coming from pollsters that historically have, have had a Republican tilt. And one of the theories about what's going on here in that regard is that there, th these Republican-leaning polling operations are really piling on here to try to affect the polling averages so that at the end of the day, when Democrats pull out some of these races, the Trumpian Republican Party can then engage in the big lie again about how, oh, I was ahead before Election Day, all the polls showed me ahead before Election Day, and then you know, all the votes were cast and and I lost. So there's fraud going on here because the fact is that despite the polling showing Democrats are in a weakening position. And Jim just mentioned the turnout figures so far in California. But let me talk about them in, in other states, because as of this, as of today, Democrats now have a lead in the votes that have already been cast. These 30 some million that 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 Jim talked about have a 50 to 40% uh, lead over Republican votes that are already in the bank. 
This is better, by the way, than, than the margin that we had in 2020 when Joe Biden got 80, 81 million votes. And on a state-by-state -state basis, here's some of the numbers, which are pretty impressive. The net Democratic margin over Republicans so far in votes cast, as compared to 2020, the presidential election, are in Michigan, plus 21%, in New Jersey, plus 17%, in Pennsylvania, plus 13%, Wisconsin, plus 13%, Georgia, plus 12%, and in North Carolina, Nevada, and New Mexico, um, and Arizona, it's the same thing. So the fact is, what we have here are two streams of information that are contradictory. We have polling data that shows Republicans are trending pretty heavily and we have actual voter turnout in terms of Democrat versus Republican, which is actually trending very heavily toward Democrats. So, you know what, I would tell you this, if I could tell you how this is all going to turn out, I could also tell you the exact date that Jesus Christ is coming back to Earth. Tell us. We've got to know. <laughs> we'll promote the blog. <laughs> well, well you, you can see that Gary South is, in fact, a true political analyst and all I did was stay at a holiday inn once so <laughs> I am I am resigned to to quote him um, well this this massive turnout uh automatically uh translate into democrat democratic surplus democratic edge democratic victory well a lot of people it, turn out what if there is turn out there's been a paradigm shift and, and Gary would have the numbers. I know the big picture. He would have the numbers. Republicans used to turn out a lot earlier. Um, we would have huge leads and absentee ballots. And then as the election day and the late absentee votes were cast, Democrats would pick up. Um, you know, Donald Trump raised the question of integrity of elections. And so. Now Republicans tend to hold their ballots, um, and uh, that that works negatively in terms of turnout for uh, for Republicans on the front end. So in the last election, uh, you know, we have leads, and then Republicans uh, picked up a little afterwards. Um, so I'm I'm not sure what the final turnout the want election ballots banked early for my team and I want the other team to wait until election day because you know there there can be rain um, uh, because of Donald Trump's uh, talking to a certain percentage of the Republicans they now hold their ballots they walk them to the polls and I don't know about the rest of the state but Southern California is going to have pretty bad rain Monday Tuesday and Wednesday of next week and that doesn't bode well uh, for Republicans. Jim, you, you know, um, here's what surprises me or just really interests me about Republicans. Both parties have had weirdness in their past and people who are in extremes in their past and hard to get together under a big tent at convention time and that kind of thing. Both parties have had that. But the last few years, the Republican Party nationally, I don't know how this plays out in California. That's what I wanted to ask you. But there have been such extremes, evangelical Christians who support Trump. There have been the base apparently hasn't changed nationally in terms of Trump support, despite, you know, two impeachments and all these allegations and court cases and colleagues that have been in all this stuff surrounding him. The guy is 
seems to me amazingly he's impregnable, it seems like. So, but the parties as a whole seems to have changed from the party of um, pro-military, uh, watcher spending, uh, prudence in, in government, that kind of thing. What, what's your take on it? used to be party chair, so maybe you have a better take than the rest of us on it. Well, you know, the, the base of each political party um, tends to be, uh, how, how do I say this? They tend not to be very centrist in their views. It's why, by the way, when one party takes control of the White House, the House and the Senate, uh, they do all sorts of things that make their base happy. Uh, and, and they inflame the great center of the American electorate. And that's why in 2006, Republicans uh, lost the House when we were in charge. In 2010, uh, Barack Obama lost the House. Uh, and in 2014, uh, lost the Senate as well. In 2018, Republicans had the House and we lost the House during the Trump presidency. Um, I think both parties, uh, by and large, are, are, are becoming smaller. And as they become smaller, with the rise of pure independent voters, uh, the base voters, which tend to be on the right in my party and the left in Gary's party, uh, get a little bit uh, a greater uh, say in, in what that party does. But there are a number of states now. I'm uh, the first one that comes to the top of my mind is New Hampshire. Uh, I think New Hampshire uh, independents are number one, Republicans are number two, and Democrats are number three. So, um, you know, I the base wants what the base wants, um, and that's that's true with both political parties. Can I make an editorial comment, if you don't mind? Uh, go ahead. I, I agree with Jim. I think the Republicans will take the House. Depends upon what the margin is. But but I will have to say this. And again, this is probably going to sound like an editorial comment to Republicans. But I want to sort of migrate into the issue of whether or not that's actually a good thing for the United States of America. Because when you look at these Republicans who are running in 2022, there are over 200 election deniers that are running here. These are not the typical kinds of Republicans from 20 or 30 years ago who, as you mentioned, John, are concerned about taxes and regulations and a strong military, you know, a, a robust, uh, you know, foreign policy. These are crazy people. These are crazy ass people who, 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 who deny that, that, that Biden actually won the election, who are doing all kinds of crazy crap out here. And if, Kevin McCarthy gets the majority and is elected speaker. This is not going to be like John Boehner. This is not going to be like Paul Ryan being speaker when you had kind of the Freedom Caucus nutcases out there, relatively small minority of, of the full uh, Republican caucus that were trying to be the tail that wagged the dog. If he gets the majority, the tail is going to be wagging the dog. And not only that, they're going to be the dog and they're going to try all kinds of crazy crap. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to probably, you know, impeach Biden three times. They're going to have hearings on Hunter Biden's laptop. They're going to be trying to attack social security, attack Medicare, doing all, you know, cut off, cut off us support. Um, you know, and, and, and so, 
in Ukraine. And so the, the real question I think that Republicans have to struggle with, I mean, there'll be a big celebration when they take the House and, yay, we got the House back. We'll stop these socialist, you know, Democrats from doing what they're doing. But the fact is, in my mind, and I'm saying this as an American, not just as a Democrat, I fear for this country when these kinds of Republicans that are on the ballot that came through the primaries, these kind of extreme mega Republicans are basically running the House of Representatives. And I think it's going to be an unmanageable situation for, for Kevin McCarthy. And I will have no sympathy for him because, you know, he's basically turned into a mega sympathizer himself in order to try to win the majority in the House. But this, these are not the kind of Republicans that used to control the House who are fairly conservative, you know, anti-tax, anti-regulation, pro-military, pro-police, the whole thing. These are crazy ass people who where where mass insanity has taken over. And let me give you an example. And and this this hits close to home with Jim Brulty. The vice chair of the California Republican Party, when Jim was chair, was a woman from San Francisco named Harmeet Dillon, right? She is, and by the way, she's not, she's not a kind of out there kind of uh, isolated Republican. She is, in fact, the National Republican Committee woman from the state of California. She's chair of the San Francisco Republican Party. She was vice chair of the California De uh, Republican Party under Jim Brulton. She has now taken on Donald Trump as his lawyer in the fight against the House of Representatives subpoenaing his records with respect to the January 6th uprising. I mean, so you don't have mainstream Republicans anymore. There are a couple of good, relatively good Republicans out there, the governor of Massachusetts, the governor of Maryland, although they're going to be out of office in a matter of months. But basically what's happened here is that despite there are still some fairly decent apples out there, the whole Republican tree is completely rotten and corrupted by Donald Trump from the top branches to the roots. And I really honestly do not say, see how anybody with a conscience can say they're still a member of the Republican Party, knowing that this thing has been totally taken over by Donald Trump and the mega extremists. And th that's where this party is headed at least for this foreseeable future. And it is not good for America. Jim, <laughs> I think I'll well, go we've to now, you. Yeah, we've, we've, we've now moved from uh, analysis to partisanship, but let's talk about deniers. Uh, um, let's just start with what the Republicans tried to do on January 6th by challenging the electoral count in two states. Uh, Democrats, however, in 2004, tried to overturn the results in Ohio, and had they been successful, it would have overturned the results of the election. So not one, one party doesn't have a monopoly on election deniers, but let's talk about, let's talk about all the deniers, the defund the police and the free cash, no cash bail um, Democrats who now deny that their policies had anything to do with the rise of crime across the country. Um, the, uh, the Democrats who campaigned on getting rid of the fossil fuel industry, which led to an energy shortage around the world that drove the price of oil and uh, gasoline in America to record highs. I just filled up my car in Orange County paid over $6.80 a gallon. Uh, those, those let's get rid of fossil fuel folks deny that they had anything to do 
with the price of gasoline. The folks who evidently have never followed economic policy that when your economy is humming, you don't further stimulate it by passing a so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, like me saying the jumbo pizza at uh, Pizza Hut is is the diet version. Um, they overinflate the economy. Uh, we have the highest inflation in 40 years. And now those folks are denying that they had anything to do with it. I'd like to get back to the uh, analysis of the election, but if Republicans win, and I suspect they will, it's because the American people are repudiating the party that is currently in power, uh, which has turned the average IRA from $100,000 when Donald Trump left office to about $72,000 uh, today, um, and is forcing folks to choose uh, between um, food and gas. We're going to have, we're already starting to ration heating oil up in the Northeast, which is why some of those congressional seats in the New England area are in play. I'm skeptical they ultimately will flip uh, the Republican way. But, but there are deniers on, on both sides of the aisle. And uh, the question that analysts ought to ask is if, if the American people are so against election deniers, um, why is it that there are significant numbers of them are going to win elections? Is it an embrace of their philosophy or a rejection of the current philosophy of Democrats? But, but I, Gary and I, Gary and I will, um, I guess this is the first time in my life, Gary, you just said I have no conscience, but that's okay. At, you know, at, at the end of the day, I, I still love you. But um, since I don't have a conscience, I guess let me I, can't, I can't value why I do love you. Let me, let me ask you a basic question. You talked about election deniers on the Democratic side. It is true that in certain elections passed, including 20, in, in, 20, in 2000, you had Democrats in the House objecting to the election returns in Ohio. I believe 16 Democrats actually walked out of the House uh, in protest over the certification of the Ohio results. But can you tell me the last time a Democratic president assembled an armed crowd in Washington and sent them up to the Hill to try to disrupt the certification of the electoral votes? Can you tell me the last time that happened under a Democratic president? Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I agree with your premise that anybody assembled an armed crowd. Um, my recollection is Donald Trump said, let's peacefully walk to the Capitol. But um, if we want to talk about January 6th, we, we can talk about January 6th. But I thought we were talking about the upcoming election. We'll make that up on a following uh, follow-up podcast. But let me ask you both one last question. 30 seconds. Can you make a prediction uh, about the California elections, a particular candidate winning a particular congressional race. This is something after the election, you want to say, hey, Jim Brilty said that, and Gary South said that, and they were right or they were wrong. But do you have any, any uh, predictions about the race, about the California elections as we go into, uh, as we go into election day? Jim first. <laughs> um, you know, I think Michelle Steele wins rather easily. I think young Kim wins rather easily. And because he is a friend of mine, I'm going to say that Scott Baugh 
upsets Katie Porter and is elected. And, you know, that's, that's easy for me to say, because if he wins, I look brilliant. And if he doesn't, I, I stayed with my friend, uh, which, which is the cardinal rule of politics. I'd rather lose with my friends than win with people that are not my friends. <laughs> Gary? Well, I will make one, I guess, prediction, although I'm not going to stand behind it if you hold me to it. But <laughs> Gavin Newsom won in 2018, 62 to, 68, 62 to 38. That was the biggest margin of victory for any, Demo any governor of California, Democrat or Republican, since Earl Warren in 1950, before I was born, probably before anybody on this call was born. Um, Newsom won 62-38 in 2018. He beat the recall 62-38. I think he might well be on track to beat the Earl Warren record from 1950, which, by the way, was 64.85% of the vote. And if you look at the polling that just came out today, uh, he's not quite there yet. But I think when all the votes are tallied, you could have Gavin Newsom winning the most historic re-election victory of any uh governor in California history, Democrat or Republican. That's my prediction. I would also say on the congressional side, I think Congressman Mike Garcia gets beat. And I believe, well, he should, because he is the only member of Congress on the Republican side whose district is fully contained within L.A. County, which is not exactly a Republican redoubt. And he has conducted himself not in a way that would comport with the kind of people he has in his district, but he's comported himself in Congress like he's some kind of a mega supporter from Wyoming or Oklahoma. And I think if any Republican incumbent deserves to get beat, it's Mike Garcia, and I think he will. Fair enough. Tim, did you have anything you wanted to add? Or? Yeah, you know, I've, I've been silent here just watching, uh, just holding everyone's coat as you all battled it out. Yes. Uh, I did have one question. Do either of you or both of you have thoughts on, on the L.A.? Mayor's race. That's going to be a real tight one, I think. And uh, just wondering if either of you want to weigh in on there on a prediction on who's taking that. Aaron Bass will win, although it will be tight. I, I know what the polling is, so I can't I can't give away any confidences here. But Karen Bass is going to win. She's going to pull it out. She will lose on election day, but when all the votes are counted, she's going to win. You have you have Caruso, who spent close up to to one hundred million dollars running for mayor of the city. And in the latest poll that the LA Times reported this morning, he's at exactly 41%. My view is if you haven't made the case and made the sale for yourself after you spend $100 million in a mayor's race in a city of just 4 million people, you haven't made the sale. And I think at the end of the day, Karen Bass pulls it out, although it would be close. She spent, by the way, about $4 million, $4 million compared to his nearly 100 million bucks. But I think she's going to win. And I'll, I'll stand by that. Well, thank you both very much. Jim Brilty, thank you. Wait, are we not going to have – Jim, are you going to weigh in on that? Oh, or yeah, no? we have our uh... – oh, 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 the, the big winner of the L.A. mayor's race is the consultant who gets the commission on the media buy for Rick Caruso. <laughs> uh, that uh, I, I don't know. Is it still 17, 18 percent, Gary? So uh, on 100 million, that'd be about 18 million. The consultant can retire. Um, That's the Clint I, Riley I, rule, I think. Yeah, I, I think it would be a huge upset if if Karen Bass uh, loses loses that race. And um, and as I said uh Gary is the guy that spends a lot of time analyzing it. I'm the one that cribs from him. So I'll, I'll defer to his judgment there. 
Fair enough. Thank you both for joining us. I really appreciate this fun. We really appreciated it. We'll follow up at some point after the election too and, and chat with you again if we can. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Gary. And now we're going to segue into our famous feature. <laughs> Who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Jim, what do you think? Who do you think had the worst week? Honestly, I think all of us political junkies who read Twitter 21 hours a day probably had the worst week because we're all afraid it's going to go away. Uh, But we're really not political figures. We're not elected officials or whatever. So I would say in that thing, too, in that sense. Yeah, Uh, I think Brooke Jenkins of San Francisco seems to have had quite a poor week. Uh, And uh, yeah, it's not looking great for her. It's not. I I agree. She was. um elected in a special election in July. She took the, the place of the guy who was recalled and she was unpart she was a partisan in that recall committee. She worked at the DA's office under him. And he was recalled. He is now is campaigning against Sir Last I heard he actually wanted to come back into the race and get back get his job back. But Brooke Jenkins uh has gotten into trouble over the past week because she emailed a friend who also was a member of that recall recumbent. Um Recall, uh, email that friend with details of the rap sheet, criminal history, uh, law enforcement details on a guy named McAllister who had been involved in a two car fatal accident, uh, excuse me, two fatal car accident the previous year and wound up being something of a political issue in the campaign that led to the successful recall. She was not authorized to do that, uh, apparently. And there's, a lot of concern among in San Francisco about whether she should be prosecuted or not. She's the top law enforcement person in the city, whether she should be prosecuted and brought to trial as well. So this is really a weird case as only San Francisco can produce one. And Brooke Jenkins seems to right now be in a bit of trouble just four days, I guess, before election day. She was elected in June, but she stands for her re-election in, in November, on November 8th on Tuesday. And to be clear, this probably won't affect her re-election at all. It's probably too late, breaking too late with early voting and all that stuff. I suspect she coasts to re-election. Uh, of course, what do I know? But, that might be uh, true. No, that could. that's a good point. Uh, so many people have voted already. I think the numbers uh, the last uh, statewide, anyway, the numbers are about 70 percent, between 60 and 70 percent do uh, use the ballot, use the mail-in ballot. So presumably in San Francisco, most of the people have voted. This relatively last minute scandal might not have much of an impact. So who knows? But ultimately, she could face criminal prosecution or uh, or at least a reprimand. Yeah, or even a recall. <laughs> so, yeah, well, now, there would be an irony, wouldn't it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but see, the lesson here is that that needed to be an October surprise and not a November surprise. That's right. That's exactly right. So, um, so, and I guess Chester Boudin is watching this very carefully to see who what happens with uh, with her. So, Tim Foster, thank you so much. Thanks, Sean. Uh, and uh, we will. Uh, so, for our regular listeners, uh, next week our our episodes will be the special episodes that'll be presenting our postmortem of the election, which we're going to yes. hold on Thursday. Yes. As you probably heard at the top of the podcast, you're all welcome to join us. Just sign up. There's no cost. Just go to capitalweekly.net slash events. You can sign up for each panel that you are interested in. And uh, we'll be doing that on Thursday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. 
live and then we'll make these available as podcasts later and we'll inundate you with them uh, next week. Yeah, and it's a sterling lineup and our keynoter is uh, Mike Madrid, a co-founder of the Lincoln Project and also well-known California as a specialist in Latino politics and local politics. So a good time will be had by all. So if you have a chance, please tune in. All right, thanks, Sean. We'll see you see everybody later. Yep. Thank you, Tim. Talk to you later. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.